Welcome to Cross Section, a show discussing all things design and construction. Your hosts, Alex Regnery, project manager and self-proclaimed recovering architect, and myself, Nathaniel St. Jean, registered architect and builder, tackle the vast spectrum of our fields. Whether you're a seasoned pro, student, or just generally curious about the industry, there's something for everyone. And don't worry, there's plenty of nonsense and humor to lighten the mood. So let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. We are on a roll with recording episodes. Alex and I have teed up a lot of guests this fall semester, and with us today is another one. We have uh, Marissa Mezoff from Skanska, and uh, we're going to have a very good, productive conversation about kind of where she is right now, what she's doing, and where she's, um, what her interests are, where she's come from, and that sort of thing. Um, so welcome to the show, Marissa. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to come and chat with you. Yeah. Alex and I are very big on talking with anyone in the AEC industry because I think it's it's been pretty interesting to hear the conversations from kind of everybody, right? They're all different perspectives, but yeah, we all seem to be working on very similar things. Right. It's a smaller industry than you think. Once you get in it, you kind of meet the same people again and again and build those relationships. So yeah, yeah, exactly. We've definitely seen that uh, between Alex and I, and that's actually how we come to, to meet you. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, I finished yeah. the job a few years ago and I'm still talking to you guys, so it's good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, so why don't we actually, let's start kind of there and then we'll kind of jump around with the timeline. But um, yeah, how did we come about meeting you? So basically I was working on the CETA 3 building at uh, Southern New Hampshire University. I had been there um the previous project manager, Mike Shunter, was sort of on the job in the beginning and did some of the buyouts. And then I was brought in, gosh, I want to say it was September of 2018, so a few years ago. Um, and uh, I was there for basically through the end of the job. So, um, you know, meeting on class visits to the site, I thought, honestly, was one of my favorite aspects of that, that we could bring the students that are interested in studying this type of thing to the site and really get them involved with their projects, you know, sort of, you know, hands-on environment that they could really look and learn and ask questions when they felt like speaking that day uh, during the tour. So, um, you know, meeting you there and kind of getting through that. And I think I went to some of your um, presentations with the students on their project reviews and things like that. So that's basically how we met and kind of built that relationship over the time and the duration during construction. So Marissa and Nathaniel for clarification, when you say CETA, is that the wood species as we say it in New England or what do you mean by CETA? It's the College of Engineering, Technology, and Aeronautics. <laughs> and interestingly enough, you, you may not realize this, which is now called CETA, School of Engineering Technology. Interesting. Yeah, I think I still have that acronym in my head always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's still called CETA. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of changes going on over where we are, but it's... Uh... CETA, CETA, or CETA, it's, uh, it's kind of all the same to us these days. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so that's actually really great. And I think you, 
may or may not have mentioned this, but yeah, basically brought onto the project working in the role of PM, correct? Yes, yes. So I was brought in, um, basically, a lot of the subcontractors had already been bought out. So we're kind of, if, you know, people need to know what Skanska is, we're kind of the middleman between the client, the owner, and then all of the subcontractors. So we basically buy out all of the different scopes of work um, into the different trades that perform the work and are experts in their field. And then we basically work with the architect and the owner to make sure that the you know, construction sequencing meets the schedule, meets the budget, meets the design intent. Uh, so we, you know, kind of are the middleman between everyone and making sure that it gets done, you know, properly on time and on budget. Which is interesting uh, right there when you say middleman, right? Um, because in maybe old school thinking of middleman that sort of suggests do we need this middleman, but how important is that role, right? With construction managers as there's probably a better there, 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 I suppose there's probably a better way to term that, but, but as the middleman um, and and all those things that you mentioned that are um, so important in, in managing um, a successful project. Right. Well, I think even from the beginning, something that was a little bit different on this job is that it was a design build. So Skanska actually hired uh, HGA, Wilson HGA, the architect, and therefore all of the design consultants. So that, um, you know, that's actually one of the first design builds I've worked on in the 15 years I've been with Skanska. So it has a very different dynamic to it. Um, than I would typically find because most jobs that I'm on, the owner hires the architect. And so, you know, just the the process and how we even ask questions, you know, RFIs and process submittals and look at design changes, it's a little bit different on a design build than it is on a different type of contract with the owner where they're hiring them. Yeah. Um, So for all of our young learning minds out there, um, there's all these different, uh, delivery methods for these projects. And, um, you know, I was used to long time ago, 20 plus years ago, a lot of the traditional, um, design bid build delivery method, which was owner hiring the architect and then going out and competitively bidding for the build. Uh, but yeah, that, that's an interesting, that was an interesting process is having um, you as the construction manager bring in the architect. And I know that there was a kind of a, a process there and in, 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 in involving us in that, in that process too, is the whole partnership, but yeah, interesting to note, to note that. <clears throat> yes. So, I mean, just as the, the Skanska team, just kind of going back to your question about, you know, what purpose do we serve in a way? Um, you know, the, so we have our, our operations team on site at all times. So we have our project managers, our APMs, 
product engineers, uh, which is kind of like the, the field office, but then we also have the superintendents. So these are people that have been working in this field. I think Rich Tardif, who was the superintendent on the job, he was actually, you know, a carpenter by trade. Uh, he was part of the union for a long time before he came to work with different companies and with Skanska. So to have that expertise of someone who does this day in, day out, was actually part of the working trade, but, you know, tradespeople, um, really brings a value that's unparalleled in the fact of having to work through designs. I mean, Rich could call out any drawing, any detail, and, you know, sometimes offer up um, recommendations and advice about how to solve a certain constructability issue out there. And that's, uh, you know, the, the people we hire um, and that have that experience really make it more cost effective for everyone involved. We can come up with value engineering, cost effective solutions that don't, um, you know, raise issues of, of that kind. So, you know, having superintendents and then project managers that know how to buy scope because it's, it's an art really buying out a trade and making sure that, you buy there and it's all in a competitive bidding environment where you have multiple subcontractors bidding on the same work. We are trained professionals in understanding that we need to sort of what we call it leveling them, right? Um, so that we yeah. have different bids from different subcontractors and we need to bring it down to apples to apples to make sure they all have the same scope, make sure they all have the same time frame. Um, all the qualifications and exclusions. So that's something we're trained in in order to do that properly, do it right, get the right value, you know, work with them. And it also comes into play as well that with Skanska or other GCs um, or CMs, you know, you build those relationships with the subcontractors over the years so that there's a, you know, a feeling of trust between um the subcontractor and Skanska when they're bidding and understanding that we want to be fair with them. You know, if they, you know, honestly miss something, we're going to, we're not going to try to hide it from them and say, you, should, you know, we're going to say you need to carry this, this, and this. So it's really about that and what we're trained to do and those relationships that we build so that we can get the best deal for our client. Now, do you find kind of, there's a lot to unpack with that. Um, Go back to the uh, that design build process, right? Sure. Um, it's interesting that the that was the first project, and you were saying fifteen or so years in the industry. What's interesting, we had uh, an architect, a younger architect, on a few episodes ago, and, and she was saying that yeah, design build is kind of the way that she likes to work, right? Because it's very collaborative. You're really creating a good partnership or a good team with a contractor or a CM, for example. Um, the projects she works on seem to be, they're a lot smaller in scale. So there's, there's some benefits and some cons to that obviously, but what do you think in terms of what you've been working on? Skanska is a huge global company. What are some of the advantages over the kind of the traditional process? So, like I said, the, the typical thing of not doing design build. So if you think of when I say design build, it's that the CM hires the architect versus the owner hiring the architect, right? Yep. So there's kind of pros and cons to both sides in my mind. Um, you know, if the owner hires the architect and design consultant, so that includes the whole, you know, MEP, FP, um, consulting firm, 
um, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection, the structural engineer, the civil engineers, everyone. So if there's something that in the design becomes an issue, either cost or schedule, the liability falls on the owner to rectify that, to take care of that, to take ownership of that, right? And then when, you know, someone like Skanska, we hire them, it becomes our liability, but it also gives us more control of, um, you know, working with the architect and just like we would do for schedule or cost, you know, mitigations on things that come up that we need to work through. I would say that um, some of the advantages were that we sort of, you know, on a the typical non-design build job, we just get, you know, documents issued to us after the owner and the architect have sort of done their review without giving us an opportunity to look at it and give our opinion of it. Right. So we get involved earlier in the design process so that we can kind of give our two cents of things we think will work and, you know, you know, kind of using our experience to their advantage more in that process than it would be normally where we just get issued drawings and they're say, go build this. And then it takes us time to dig into it versus if we're in, involved in the process from the beginning, we can kind of work some of those bugs out before it gets to that point where it's the sub start seeing those documents. Right. And it creates kind of that, that win, win, win situation for all three of the primary stakeholders. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a, I have a question. Um, Again, your comments earlier, like Nathaniel said, a lot of things to unpack there. And you're talking about superintendents. Um, first of all, you're you're currently st- you're, you're still up in, in a project management position. Yes, I'm a project manager. Project manager. Yep. Um, and so, speaking of superintendents, would you say it's typical um, that the the suit with all of those different roles and responsibilities with uh, construction management, superintendents and PMs and APMs, um, field engineers, et cetera. Would you say that it's typical that the superintendent, not necessarily more senior, although it may be that is, but more just more experience and more, um, field experience, like you had mentioned that the particular rich was a, was a carpenter. Yes. I mean, so for myself, for example, I have a degree in civil engineering. I had never done any internships or, um, you know, rotations or anything at on any construction site. So me coming out of college, was the first time I had stepped on a construction site and, you know, simple things that I just had no idea about um, yeah. versus people also that, you know, superintendents I have found, they seem to gravitate more towards doing rotations and internships and doing things out in the field that all through college or even high school, that it's something that they got into male, female. Um, and so they have, I guess me coming into it, they have a better on-site technical aspect than I ever did coming into it and starting working. But I, I am also a visual learner, which is why I wanted to be in construction as opposed to going into design. Uh, but the superintendents are expected. I mean, they are 
on site with the workers all day, every day. They are our on site supervision. People, you know, we do not have subcontractors working unless there is a SCANSCA representative, which 90% of the time are superintendents. They're the ones that take responsibility for the work. Yeah, I, I, I think that's good to kind of differentiate between those different roles, especially especially for our, you know, our young learning listeners. Um, because I, you know, our students that we talk to, um, they they often they're, you know, all have different sort of um, you know, thoughts about where they ultimately want to be. Some of them want to be a superintendent, some of them want to be project managers, whatever it might be. So I think it's good to to differentiate. Um, yeah, and, and you probably remember our clerk of the works at the time, Kevin. Um, he, out of our whole team, he, he, from the ownership side, from the capital side, clearly far more knowledge and experience than any of us. And and I think it takes someone with that kind of experience to, to fill those kind of roles, um, you know, superintendents, uh, the clerk of the work on our, on our end. So. Um, Absolutely. I would say, you know, superintendents, you can't keep them at their desk and product managers, they feel like they're chained to their desk. So yeah, we yeah. have to deal with all of the, the paperwork and the contracts and the documentation and things like that. And, and, you know, the superintendents are our, our eyes and ears in the field um, that, you know, it, we work together all day, every day, we're a team, but they're, they're the eyes and the ears and the go-to in the field and the project managers, you know, every, every one of us, every part of our team has a vital role in working together and making the project a success, but there are definite responsibilities of what the expectations are in your day-to-day activities. Um, you know, project managers, I'm out in the field all the time dealing with certain things. So it's a, it's a teamwork effort, but the superintendents are the ones out there all day, every day, answering questions, getting things done. They're responsible for the schedule, updating the schedule, making sure that the crew sizes are the right size, you know, talking, you know, if there's a problem, they come to us and we go to the project managers. So we talk more with the project managers of the subcontractors and the superintendents deal more with the foremans. Uh, you know, the people yeah. running the crews, the foremen are the lead people running the crew for each trade. So there is a foreman for every different subcontractor and every trade. So they're the main contacts, with our superintendent on a daily basis, making sure, you know, OK, per our schedule, because we have a base schedule when we start a job, knowing that we have certain durations that we need to complete activities and the superintendents, one of their main roles is making sure those get done on time and dealing with the foreman to say, I need you here. I need you, you know, because when you have a site, no matter how big it is, it's the superintendent's also another major role to coordinate where and how the work gets done in an efficient manner so that there is a flow to the job. Yeah. What's interesting about that is not only they doing that in real time, they have to have the foresight to be able to, look, yes. look ahead. Right. And then also in, in your speaking to it is the knowledge and experience of all of those types of trades, um, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in, in my building systems course, talk about that all the time. We're not, we're not engineers, we're not designers, but we, 
have to understand how all of these different systems get incorporated into buildings and you have to understand each of those systems enough to be dangerous, right? Yes. Yeah. All, all important skills. Yeah. And, and kind of let's elaborate that on a little bit, right. Is l- looking at the, the specific role of the project manager, maybe take us through, take the listeners through like a typical day, like your typical day as a PM. Well, you know, one of the things I love is it probably isn't such a typical day. Um, I love that um, every few years, every year, every four years, depending on the the length of the job, is that you sort of get a restart button, right? Like I have been on, maybe I've been with the company 15 years, but I've been on six or seven different projects. So it's it's a, a great source of pride and honor for me that I can be involved in these different projects and work with different people. Um, so as far as, you know, project management, you know, I started as a project engineer. Um, so typically in those roles, they will focus on, um, I'll use a lot, you know, this industry has a lot of acronyms. So if there's any that you would like me to explain, or if I'm not doing that properly, let me know. Um, but basically what we call document control. So um, that is is huge because when we when we buy out a trade for a specific scope, there are drawings and then there are specifications, right? So we have to whoever the PM or APM is handling those subcontractors because typically on a job you will have multiple project managers and they are responsible for certain trades for certain contracts. So. Um, you have to know what the scope is. So even if you do, you didn't buy it, because we have like a pre-con and an estimating department, sometimes they help with the buys if the project manager or the team isn't fully developed, fully on site, fully you know involved in the project yet. Then when the project managers, APMs come on board, they need to dive right into the drawings, dive into the specs, look at the contracts, figure out what the subcontractor owns. And then you go through a process, through a submittal process, where if there, I'll just use um, flooring, for example. If there is carpet, VCT, um, epoxy, you know, you might have 10 different types of flooring, whether it's resilient, um, resinous flooring, things like that, terrazzo. Um, so you have to get submittals from the subcontractors that meet the specifications and the drawings, the design intent, and get that through a submittal process for approval with the architect or the appropriate design consultant. So that's one of our major roles is that we identify who we're handling and we make sure that all the parts and pieces are in place for approvals for the products they're going to use because, you know, that's part of the process sometimes in working with the architect because maybe they don't know what color they want them to be yet as part of, you know, the original design, or they don't know what pattern they want it to be or the layout, or maybe there's something they're not sure yet. So you work through that process and make sure that by the time the sub gets on site, they know what submittals they're, you know, they know what products they're using, they're approved, that type of thing, because it becomes a liability if you install something that hasn't been approved. So that's something we try to minimize and avoid at all costs because that can cause problems. Um, so then, you know, there is the, we get the contracts out, we get, there are all kinds of insurance requirements, whether it's a owner insurance program, a contractor insurance program. So we need to make sure they have insurance before they get on site. We need to make sure they go through safety orientation. We have, Skanska has a very robust safety culture, 
which means that there are a lot of requirements for them, for anyone to come on board to work on site. They go through a drain, you know, training, drug testing, orientation. Um, we make sure they have all their PPE. They go through what we call a construction work plan. It, it's basically a program we use called Planet where they enter in all of their activities that they will be performing on site. And what it does is it identifies the safety hazards and what they're going to do to mitigate them. So we have to go through that with them. And then, you know, they get on site and nothing is perfect. No drawings will ever be perfect. We understand that. We know that. And that's part of our job is to work through that and make sure we get the result that the client and the architect wants and make it look nice and pretty and functional uh, for the occupants. So we work through what we call an RFI, which is a request for information. So it's all day, every day, dealing with the superintendent and the foreman. Well, this doesn't fit. Or how do you want that to work with that? What's the transition detail here? So that on a daily basis, we're working through, you know, questions that we have in the field that we need the architect. I mean, I think I had Christiane, the main architect at HGI on, you know, speed dial on FaceTime. That turned out to be a good one when she wasn't there on site all the time that I would be like, okay, what do you think about this? How does that look? Can we work through this idea? You know, so that's a, a typical day. And then the other side of it is sort of cost control. Um, so there are design changes on some jobs. You might get a design change once a week. I just finished up a job where we were getting what we call bulletins or CCDs, ASIs on a daily basis. We were getting changes. So that is also a huge process in Skanska receiving it. We review it. We decide who needs to look at this, who needs to price these changes. Mm -hmm. We have to sort of coordinate between, you know, if it's a CCD, which is a construction change directive, that means proceed. If it's an ASI, it's an architectural supplemental information. So that means we think this is just clarification, but let us know if there's any clarification. <laughs> and then we have um, proposal request, which basically means we think we want to make this change, but before we do, we want to see how much you think it's going to cost. Mm -hmm. So really having a good understanding of what all of those intents are and transmitting and communicating that information to the sub so that they don't proceed with something that they shouldn't. So cost control and getting um, the owner updates on where we stand with costs, with changes, with things that are sort of unforeseen in the project and, you know, communicating that to them because we have contractual obligations to the owner to notify them of cost changes, schedule changes because of designs or an unforeseeable condition. So, um, you know, the project manager is busy all day, every day, never enough time in the day. Um, we have lots on our plate and it's changing daily. You know, as you kind of go through the process of construction, you start out with buying it and issuing contracts, going through the submittal phase, going through the question phase, the, you know, and then you kind of go through the phase where you're in construction and then you get to the end and you're doing closeout. You're getting all the warranties and the as builds closing out punch lists, which I think I have nightmares about sometimes. Punch list. Oh, isn't that the worst? That word. And I, it's so funny too, because doing punch lists for so long, when you're in that mode, have you ever, I don't know if you guys have had to be involved in punch lists, but I'll be like out to dinner at a restaurant and I'm like looking around and like paint touch ups <laughs> and in. There's a scratch over there. I'm like, stop it, Marissa, stop it. Like I have to like yeah. get my mind out of that mode. Like you really train your brain 
to look for certain things. So I'm happy when I'm not in that mode because it makes things people are like, what are you looking at? I'm like, don't ask me. Just don't ask. I'll just stop. I'll just stop. Yeah. I oh, was, yeah, pl- yeah go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I was just recently in a space <laughs> with my fiance and she, <laughs> it was a newer space and she's like, why is that blue tape on the wall? And I was like, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Plenty of punch lists. Oh yeah. And that's the toughest, toughest part of the project. Not just so much the punch list, but what you're ultimately getting to, which is closing this thing out. And it's always those finishing touches. It's just, uh, it can be, it can, it can drag in it, but it's, it's on everyone, right? It's not, uh, it's, it's not just one, um, you know, responsible party. It's, it's the architect, it's the contractor, it's the subs, it's the owner, the owner. How about the owner throwing a bunch of punch list items at you on top of what you're trying to control? I'm still dealing with that. So yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a process and that's why, you know, but it's, it's good because you kind of go through different mindsets as you go through construction and then close it out and you learn little tricks and things over the years. And I, and I have to say that I think, you know, we have a, we have a saying and we always seem to have a sign in every trailer I've ever been in that it's not how you um, start a job. It's how you finish it because you can do everything well during a whole job. And then at the end, if you do not close it up and get out, and make sure everyone's happy and you get out of sight, get out of mind and close it out right and close it, you know, get the subs paid, get things signed off. Um, it can leave a lingering taste in people's mouths. So I find that, you know, that's always been a um, something important to me is to try to close a job out as strongly as possible, as quickly as possible, but doing it right. Yeah, no question. I uh, worked for years um, as, as an architect with a, um, with a contractor, he was a, they, they were general contractors and the owner. So when I say he, it was, he, he was, he, he, he was a commander, but when you say how you finish a job, not how you start it, this guy actually had a real, I, I would say it was pretty effective um, for as kind of old school as he was when he stuck, when we started a project with his company, his, one of the first things out of his mouth was zero punch list policy. So the way he started it, the way they wanted, he wanted to end it was how he started it by, you know, just getting that in their head do it right the first time. And it actually was pretty effective, right? Because um, what, and as you probably know, um, especially with a good contractor, a good um, construction manager, if you're able to catch it first before the designer, before the owner, that just sort of minimizes the number of hands in it and the time and all that. Right. So um, and, and, and then, and then for the, you know, whether it's a subcontractor, whoever to, to notice it even before anyone else, make it go away. Zero yes. punchless policy. Well, there's always a fine line of that timing of like Skanska usually will 
complete what we call a work to complete list. So it's the items that we know at substantial completion, sort of the, the turnover date, what what will won't be done, what will and will not be done. Um, and, you know, part of the role of the project manager, just kind of going back to that, I keep thinking more and more things that I do, um, is what we call an ROJ. So it's required on job. It's basically a log of all of the materials on the job by sub, what their lead times are and when they're released. So that kind of ties into the submittal process that if there's a type of carpet that takes 12 weeks to get, we need to work that into our schedule and make sure we're getting the materials there on time. And there is always something, it doesn't matter on any job, there are always going to be subcontractors where something happens and something doesn't get there on time. So we know that we have base scope that we need to complete. So before Punchless even starts, Scansco always does our own. But it's, it's, it's more of like a line where it's like major finishes, major items that haven't been done yet versus paint touch-ups, a scratch here, a scratch there. And again, I think a hard part for us is also the timing of when the occupants move in. Um, you know, I was just working at a school in, in Belmont. So we basically got our, our um, TCO, which is our temporary certificate of occupancy, meaning basically the TCO is where you get all your life safety tests, right? Yeah. That, that's what I think of. And what it is, is you pass your fire alarm, your pressure tests and your um, egress and the fire department comes in and the building inspector and all the other inspectors. It's basically saying that people could come into this building and get out of it safely. All of the emergency lighting is working, that type of thing. But it's really hard when you get TCO and then the architect or Skanska really hasn't had a time chance to go in and, and complete a full punch list, a full work to complete list. And then a week later, you have people in the <coughs> building using the building. So then, if you know, it's it can really turn into a nightmare sometimes because your punch list just exponentially increases once you have people in the building um, through no fault oh, of sure. your own habits, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it just uh, so there's some fine line timing that we try to or do our best to minimize that or take a good account of what the current condition is of spaces prior to occupancy. Yep. And uh, something that hasn't been uh, very loosely brushed upon here, and it's actually usually Alex's question, but I'm going to steal it because he hasn't asked it yet. Mm. All of these elements that you're talking about all have to be tracked using something, right? And I'm just going to throw out the word technology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what sort of technology, what sort of systems do you as a PM use to track all this? <coughs> So I'll actually, I'll bring you back to 15 years ago, just so I can show you the trends and things that have changed and have made our lives easier, but probably harder at the same time. Yeah, great. So <laughs> when I started... Out of, right out of college. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Right out of college. So when I started, I think there was email, but I honestly don't think we <laughs> used it very much. Okay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Um, I remember using a fax machine to send oh, things to people yeah. that I would be sitting in front of a fax machine for hours. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to print out the receipt and put it in a folder for subcontractor correspondence. Yeah. Um, we used to get what I say, full size sets of drawings 
when we would get a change from the design team, we would have to order however many sets we needed, put them in FedEx things and send them off to the subcontractor. Then we had to update our, our set of drawings in the PM office and then in the field trailer for the supers mm-hmm. when we got an RFI. So they, they came in these big, long metal binder. It looked like a binder clip, right? And you had this thing that you had to crank. I mean, we still have them. I'm not saying they don't exist these days. Okay. I'm not. Yeah, the plan there are some old fashioned people and I get it. I like my paper copy, but it's just not what people are doing these days as a trend. <clears> right. But we actually used to have to print the RFI, use a red pen and circle the area and all the drawings that affected and say, refer to RFI, tape the sketch to the back of the previous drawing. Okay. That's how we like updated things. Mm -hmm. We had a spec book all printed out that we did the same thing. Um, Steel shop drawings, we would get thousands of drawings and have to manually stamp and sign each (laughs) single one. Um, What else? Like just, just things like, like that. Um, Very analog. (laughs) Yes. So things have changed so very much. Um, We don't, we don't Mm -hmm. keep a hard copy of updated drawings, specs, anything like that. Um, There were, you know, I found even over the years that the language and the specification sections have changed according to what the expectation is of what will be on site. Like we were expected to have a hard copy updated and turn it over to the owner. Now it's all done. We are currently using um, Procore. So we use Procore for all of our document control. Um, We give everyone access to that. So that's where we keep an updated set. And you can actually, you know, there's a lot of good tricks and tools that anything that, um, another drawing or detail that's referenced, you can hit it on the the drawing you're looking at and it will bring you directly to a duplicate tab so that it will open it and you can view it side by side and you update the, you know, blue beam markups for the the RFIs there. So, I mean, just that alone has come a huge way and, you know, saved me many hours just steal shop drawings alone of manually having to shot, you know, stamp and sign. So as far as document control, that has come a long way. Uh, when we do punch lists now, everyone just has their iPads. They can take a picture of it. They mark it up on where it is on a drawing versus the hour spent. This room, west wall, you know, bottom oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I got purple tunnel at one point on one job because I was making the same motion yeah. um, so much for so many months. Um, so it's it's definitely helped us. I think in some ways... Not that we don't have conversations, but it's, you know, just send in the question as opposed to having a conversation. I find that even people that are coming into the industry now, some young engineers or um, APMs, they'll say, you know, did you follow up on this? So like, well, I emailed them twice and I haven't heard back yet. I said, did you pick up the phone and talk to a live person? So this is thing called a phone. We give you one. We pay for it. You have it. You should use it and actually try to make a human connection with people 
instead of, you know, relying on just emails or document control or, you know, texts back and forth. Like it's, it seems like that in a way has brought us away from the natural communicating tool we have, which is ourselves. Right. So that honestly has been a detriment to our field, I think. Yeah. I, you know, as much as technology has advanced so many things in the industry and all the things you talked about, which is so true, absolutely true, made it, has made it so much more efficient. Uh, there still is that need for that human connection. Um, yeah. And, and, and that is part of the problem, right? Is, is rel- then relying on that thing that's made it way too easy. Oh, I, I've emailed them three times. It's out of sight, out of mind. I think we're all guilty of that. Right. right? Um, but you know, that is so fascinating to hear from my perspective when you talk about 15 years, it really is because of the just massive changes that have happened in a matter of 15 years. Yes. And I, you know, I'm not, not proud to, to, to now I'll take you back 30 years. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. <laughs> have you driven a Horse and buggy. (laughs) (laughs) Ow! Oh, gut punch. Oh, wow. Someone's got to do it. Have you driven sets of drawings to the state capitol, which is where the building department was located, to get the, the, the permit set, the stamp permit set? You know, I have done that on jobs where I have to bring hard sets to City Hall. I think there are still some places that require that, not necessarily in Boston. I don't think I've had to do that, but in other suburban areas, I've had to. Yeah, so it was one of the first projects I ever worked on. In fact, I think it was in college, so interning, you know, in the summer or whatever. And I had to, del- I had to take the sets of drawings down, this is in the state of Indiana, um, down to the Capitol, down to Indianapolis. And you handed them the sets of drawings and you waited. Wow. And in the, oh, you, I waited there all day long until they finally called you up, hopefully before whatever, five o'clock. Um, and until you got the, the, um, the state inspector to stamp these drawings, you could take them back so the contractor could go get the local permit. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of that's online now. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly it. Right? <laughs> not, not long after that, but um, yeah. All right. So I'm sure both Nathaniel and I are now are itching for this question with all these things you've talked about and where you've come over 15 years. Um. So how did it all, how did it all start? How did you decide? Did you, you said you went into civil engineering? Yes. So I think it, I mean, it must've been my junior or senior year. I guess I've always been better at math. I think I would rather do a 13 page math problem than have to write like one paragraph. I just am not a good writer. I don't, I don't like it. I never have, never will. Um, I love to read. I love to read. Um, but I am much better. Like, I, I think I write how I speak, which is kind of like, you know, all over the place. And I, sometimes I speak better than I write. 
And I just hate it. I just hate it. Um, I'm very good at like when writing labs and just bullet points, like this is the, this is what we did. This is the sequence. But I think those were always my worst grades. I think I got like B's. <laughs> so <laughs> in writing. So math was always something to me that um, math and science that I just excelled at. And I think it was actually my mother when I was a senior in high school and we were looking I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really didn't. And I think she was like, well, why don't you just try engineering? Because that's math, that's science. You love that. I was like, okay. So I, you know, went and applied to a few different places and I ended up going to UNH um, in Durham, New Hampshire. And you can go in, or at least at that time, you could go in undecided. So because they mm. have civil, electrical, mechanical, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So the first year or two, I kind of just took the basic classes. And then I think after the first year, I had to really decide where I wanted to kind of put my path forward. So they gave you introductory classes into, like I said, electrical, mechanical, things like that. And I think what mm -hmm. really kind of piqued my interest was foundations and structures. So mm. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could go anywhere in the world and design? I mean, just to me, the idea of like, I think back to foundations and design classes where you think about like live loads, dead loads, like how everything transfers into the ground. Like I love nature. I love being out there. Right. And um, it was a really cool idea to me that I could go to any climate, any type of top of, you know, conditions, uh, and be able to build a foundation or design a structure that's going to last through the ages. Um, and just the idea of, you know, thinking about when you're designing a building, how everything has to, all of the loads have to transfer into the ground and how deep you have to go to do that. And, you know, doing soils class and, um, you know, different classes that just really kind of touched me and thinking that like, okay, that's something I'm really interested in. Mm. So I got my bachelor's degree. I think I got my, I think it's called something different now. I didn't get my stamp. I got, was it the IFE or training before that? It's like, it's called something different now than when I got it, but I went through that mm. testing and I got that. And, you know, I had grand plans when I graduated, I was going to, you know, go work in construction for a few years and then go back and get my master's and, you know, maybe get my PE stamp and things like that. Mm. Um, but knowing that, you know, I think when you sort of come out of any sort of engineering degree, you kind of have to decide, am I going into design or am I going into sort of construction? At least that's mm. the sort of options I saw mm. for myself that, do I want to be stuck behind AutoCAD all day at the same desk year after year? Or do I want to get out there because I'm such a visual learner, get out there and, you know, see some things being done. And what's interesting is that my, I think it was my senior year, Skanska was redoing um, the engineering building that I had been taking classes in. So interesting. Yeah. So mm. they were renovating and renovating, I think, well, first it was, they kind of took down part of it. They were putting up a new building and then they were going to renovate. So I didn't actually get to go into any of the new spaces because they finished it, I think, after I left. But uh, Skanska was there doing that. So I actually interviewed with Skanska uh, while I was there. 
Uh, I went to a career fair at UNH, and of course they were there because they were doing a project. And you know, we try to make ourselves known at different schools. And what's funny, I'll never tell Skanska this. Maybe I have told like human resources now, but I'm like, I think you're the one I interviewed with because it just seemed like such a good fit. Um, so yeah, I interviewed with them and got the job. And I think a month later I was working with Skanska out of Boston. So it was really cool. I got kind of a job tour, got to kind of see what I would be doing, kind of the industry I would be in. Like I said, I have never, never been on a construction site, never even thought it would be something I wanted to do until I kind of got Uh. through classes and got some aspects of that. And I remember one of my first days on site, again, I had to remind my boss when he gave me this look of like deer in headlights, like, how could you not know this simple thing? I'm like, okay, I'm going to remind you, I've never been on a construction site. (laughs) Metal studs, they have holes in them. I know what those holes are now for, but at first I was like, like, what are those holes for? And he's like, he kind of gave me this look. I'm like, yeah, what? And then obviously now I know that they're for, you know, in wall electrical and other wiring and everything else. But I had no idea what they were for. So something that simple. I've come a long way. I'll just tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I went on a job site. No, this was not. I went on the job site with this person. This person is not me. It was actually a younger, (laughs) a younger intern. Okay. (laughs) On site. Uh, Yeah, you can take it however you like. And, And she asked why the reinforcing steel was rusty. Oh, <laughs> you know, but yeah, you learn these things along the way. Oh my gosh. Everything you just talked about, how much can you unpack in there? But my first question will be even going into civil engineering at, uh, at, at UNH, how many, uh, women in the program, not just civil so- engineering, but maybe engineering overall. Right. I, I think your odds are in a class of say a hundred, there's probably 10, 10 females at that time. And then how about by the time you're graduating? Um, maybe a few more. I've seen some fluctuations over the years where there are some years that more females are going into the industry and other years where the numbers are down, honestly. So it like in your, how about in your class? Did it go down or did it stay? So all, I think that the number of females we started with is not the number of females we ended with. There were less. So right. say probably three or four or five. So I think there might've been six of us that actually graduated in the program. Yeah. That's interesting. And then how about going into construction? You know, again, 15 years ago, um, you know, was it, you, you, you are probably one of not many women in the, in the industry. No. So actually, even in the last 15 years, I have not had many women counterparts, female counterparts on a job. Usually our admin has been female and the accountant has typically been female, but I have not, there have been very few jobs where there is a PM or an APM role that is female. Um, And I think it just depends on the job and the staffing and and this and that, because I have noticed, you know, the job I was on at Belmont, there was a female project manager and a female APM. And then 
a female accountant. So that was probably the job where I had the most people out of a team of 18. There's probably four of us, which is high. Um, so I remember when I first started, um, and I'll just be truthful and honest, cause this is what it was like. It's changed, but everyone who enters the company goes through a sexual harassment training, right? Because, um, we do this to this day. We have to do it every couple of years as a reminder, um, about certain behaviors and appropriate things. And, um, at the time, the job that I went on to, the only other female was an admin who had been in the business for quite a while. At one point or another, over the first few weeks that I was there, every PM or person on the job almost pulled me aside and said, if you have any issues, you let me know. If anyone talks to you the wrong way, you know, um, you know, makes any, any appropriate comments, things like that. I think for the first couple of weeks, I really wasn't even not, not, not allowed, but I always had someone with me out and about walking around the site. Um, mm. And just as, you know, females on my side, there are not many female tradespeople um, mm. that I've seen an increase mm. in over the years either. So you're talking a site that could have anywhere from 100 to 400 people working on it and I'm the only female on that site, yeah. it can be a little intimidating. Um, you know, so I've been really lucky. I really haven't had many issues over the year. I've mostly had nothing but respectful people that I have worked with um, and people that, um, you know, most of the, the guys, and I say guys because it mostly is guys working out there, they just love what they do and they love mm -hmm. talking about what they do and they mm -hmm. are so willing yeah to just, oh, you want to know about this? Oh, you want to know about that? Well, let me tell you. And, right. you know, going through everything, I learned so much just talking to people. I can, I find that, you know, in any business, having a personality and adapting to people's personality and <laughs> learning to talk to people and really get to know them and kind of build relationships with them can only help you. Um, so, you know, it's it's tough, though, because I also remember on that same job I started on, I think I the admin was in making copies and I went in and I needed a copy. I'm like, oh, can I help you finish this? And there was a perception that if you were female working in this business, you were an admin or an accountant. And he said to me, he's like, oh, are you an admin, too? And I looked at him and I said, I said, no, I have a degree in civil engineering. I said, what do you do? So, you know, I might have a little sass myself, but um, you know, it was that perception that I was not at an equal level of the men that I worked with. So I had to, you know, women in this industry, we're always having to prove ourselves that we can do it just as well as anyone else. And I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. What is that stigma there and and what would you with all of the awesome things you've been talking about the things that you do the, 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 I mean I mean from starting from civil engineering ending up in construction and then within the construction industry all these different avenues all these different things you do and you know a pretty dynamic just even a your 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 um, day in the life is pretty dynamic on the job what would you say to you know young women out there about promoting this, uh, this industry? 
I would say that we have the right to be here. I would say that if it's something that interests you and that you have a passion about, that there's a place here for you. And it's becoming um, better and better as days go on that it's acceptable. Not, not even acceptable, but it's just more commonplace. And I would say that it's a hell of a lot of fun um, doing something different every day, meeting new people, experiencing, mm-hmm. learning. It's a growth opportunity. I would say that, you know, over the years, um, I have, I think on my first day, I was like, what do you mean you want me to call someone I don't know and talk to them? So you really go through a growth process of, (laughs) you know, building up your outgoing personality in a way of that you need, you're going to talk to people you don't know every single day. You're going to have to cold call someone and just get something out of them. And I think that um, standing, learning to just stand up for yourself and also just be honest, transparent, communicative of what you're experiencing. Uh, if a problem does come up, I've had nothing but supportive team members there with me to say this isn't right. That working with a company that has a, a great program in place that you feel comfortable talking about things um, and going to someone, I think that's important. I've never felt any differently. Um, you know, I had a problem on one job where the the foreman, he, I would be in meetings with him and my boss, who was male, he would speak differently to the males than he would to me. So after a few weeks, you know, I, I spoke to my boss about it and he said, do you need me to do anything? Do you need me to talk to anyone? I said, no. I said, I'm going to try something first and I'll let you know if I need you to, you know, step Hmm. in. So I just sat down with him and I said, you are not respecting me in my position. I said, it seems to be that I'm a female because you treat my counter male counterparts and you speak to them differently than I do. If you have a problem with me and working with me, I will call your boss and I will get you off the job and find someone who will work with me. So if you have a problem, let me know and we will take care of this today, right now. Mm. And he just backed right down. (laughs) I did not have a problem with him from there on out. He profusely apologized, but it takes, it took a while for me to get there. I mean, that was six or seven years into the Mm. business. You know what I mean? So you have to, I mean, as a female, as, as a human, I don't even think as a female, I think as a human, there is certain behavior and expectations of how you treat people and how people treat you. So I don't even think it's a female thing necessarily. I mean, we have our things, but it's just, you did not, that person did not treat me with respect. So mm-hmm. that is something huge. So I think that understanding your own worth as a human <laughs> is something that you need to be able to stand up for yourself, no matter what male, female, if you're not being treated properly, that you need to be able to do something about it. Yeah. What's really interesting about that. That's really interesting to hear um, is that that person may not have even realized it. And yep. so, and, and, and how quickly you said it, it, it changed the whole dynamic and relationship and everything probably wasn't even aware of it, but probably the way people are still. And, you know, you know, even, you know, we talk about systemic racism, right? People don't even really even fully understand that. 
concept, but it's, but in this case, it's systemic. It's kind of like systemic sexism, right? It's like, right. like you don't even realize it. Yeah. It's this, uh, it's implicit bias. That's what they said, right? Like you, you just don't consciously, yeah. you don't consciously see it. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. You know, and then it's kind of funny because I have the other side where again, and this is, this has sort of stayed the same a lot, but I remember some of my first meetings that these are people that have been in the industry for uh, 10 to 40 years. And if you don't know this, swear words are sort of commonplace on construction site. Right? No, what could, what yes. companies are you working for? They are. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. They're all there. They're there. So I grew up I with bricklayers, okay? Yeah. I just remember being in meetings and these older gentlemen who every other word out of their mouth was a swear word. And he, he would realize I was there. He's like, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. And after a while, I was like, why don't you just apologize at the beginning of the meeting for all of your swear words and we'll just go from there. Like, stop And apologizing. maybe apologize to everybody. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I even noticed I was at a, the job I was at a couple weeks ago. Um, there were these two gentlemen speaking and they were having a conversation and there were some swear words that got in there. And then he didn't realize that I was walking by him. He saw me. He's like, I didn't see you there. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm like... <sighs> Okay, well, thank you, I guess, <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's, it's almost that old gentleman, you know, gentleman, like charm and, you know, the opening a door for you and, you know, that type <laughs> of thing. But it's also a sign of respect in a way that, you know, it just, they, you see it with older generations in my mind that mm -hmm. it's not something that you see as much if there are females in the room Sometimes there's not as much swearing. Sometimes if there are certain females in the room, they're the ones swearing. So it really, there isn't one oh, way yeah. or another. It just depends. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think, so I'm looking at the, the clock here and, and realize we're coming up to the end of our time. I think you, you were hitting upon this frequently throughout too. And kind of my closing observation, right, is the construction industry, the three of us, probably know this really well, but for everyone listening, like the construction industry is a very prideful industry, right? So you, you are surrounded by people, variety of teams, variety of personalities, but at the end of the day, like everyone on that job site is like super proud and excited of like the work that they're doing because they can drive <laughs> by it one day or tell everyone else that, Hey, I, I worked on X, Y, or Z building. Right. And it's, it, it's come out through a lot of your comments, right? It's, it's very clear that you take a lot of pride in what you do every day. And uh, that's reassuring to see, right? And uh, yes, <laughs> makes absolutely. Me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think, do you have any kind of closing thoughts for us here? Um, Cause we, we will kind of, I'll keep us close to time. Sure. I, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I, we, we have a Skanska women's group um, and we actually had a meeting last week and we were talking about how to reach out to people, uh, mainly females, because it's the Skanska women's network, but, you know, almost at the high school level and, you know, at college fairs and things like that to welcome you into our arms and say, come and join us. And um, I think we bring a different perspective sometimes, a different dynamic. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's important that we 
make sure that people feel that it's an inclusive and diverse environment that they can join. And I hope that, you know, if it's something you're, you know, I'm talking to your students now, if it's something that you students are interested in, please come join us. We want you come and uh, have some fun with us and, you know, work on a project that uh, you can go back to years later and say that you were part of. And it's something that you really can't get in any other industry. Yeah. So yeah. true. Very, yeah. very on point there. Marissa, I want to thank you for the time here. We really appreciate it. Listeners, as always, you can find this podcast wherever you listen to your pods or over at tectonicanow.com slash podcast. Until next time, see you later. Thanks, Marissa. Thank you. That was great.